episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specializes in campaigning and community organizing. We work with non-profit and community-based organizations, trade unions, progressive businesses, and social democratic parties across the globe. Dunn Street develops community engagement and organizing strategies to win campaigns both big and small. Dunn Street trains engagement staff, volunteers and organisers in leadership and power building and helps leaders craft their own public narrative that tells a story that unites people and moves them to act together. If you want to create change in your community in 2024, then hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. For over 100 years, Morris Blackburn has been extending access to justice for everyday Australians through their advocacy and campaign work and they need your help. They have a job opportunity for a social media communicator with a flair for progressive campaigning based in either Melbourne or Brisbane. For more information, check out morrisblackburn.com.au slash careers. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need tools you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that energize the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns and issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. On today's episode, Rebecca Thistleton is back as our special guest host once more, this time joined by McKell Institute CEO Ed Kavanagh to chat about the latest McKell paper on the cost of living crisis and putting that in context with the next federal election campaign, which is already being played out. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify when you're done listening today. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And for all the updates on Socially Democratic, please follow us at Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. Hi there, it's Wednesday afternoon from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I'm Rebecca Thistleton filling in for Stephen Donnelly on the Socially Democratic podcast. And uh, I'm, you know, really wanting to make sure that we keep up the calibre of speakers and keep things running smoothly in Stephen's absence. So who better to get on to Socially Democratic than my boss? It's Mikel, CEO, Ed Kavanagh. Hi there, Ed. Beck, good to be with you. Uh, look, I was really keen to uh, have a chat with you this week on Socially Democratic because we've been doing so much work around cost of living measures because it seems to be shaping up to be the key issue for 2024. And even though a federal election is still going to be some way off, it feels like there's already a campaign on the cost of living underway. Totally. Look, I think um, it was becoming pretty clear, you know, the second half of last year what 2024 would look like, I think, in terms of this sort of political debate that we're going to see. And, and we saw, you know, the the federal opposition framing, you know, getting a, getting a lot of skin, actually, uh, I think, off the government over the last six months of last year, like really hammering home the cost of living pressures, blah, blah, blah. Um, and we know that over the next 12 months, whatever side looks like it's sort of 
reacting and has the answer to that, I think will be in the best position to, you know, to, to, to win the next election. Um, I think, you know, it's, yeah. it's a difficult issue to, to, um, to pull any single lever and to say you have the, the single answer or there's, a, there's no panacea, et cetera. So what's been really interesting is over the summer, obviously the, um, you know, the Albanese government has <laughs> you know, put its, uh, uh, you know, put its sort of machine into work and, and thought through what they can actually do meaningfully over the next um, little while to, to take the pressure off people in a, in a very tangible way. And that's sort of, you know, what we've seen in terms of the tax cuts and, and everything, the changes that they've announced there um, are sort of setting up the year for a, a very robust policy debate, I think, on cost of living. So um, as, as, yeah, we've been doing a lot of work over that uh, on that issue over the summer and, and uh, I guess to sort of talk through those. Yeah, good stuff. So this Friday, which will be the the day that the podcast comes out, you're going to be hosting the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, in Brisbane and having a bit of a, a Q&A session with him and also talking about some of the measures that the McKell Institute is proposing for uh, potentially cutting the cost of living in ways that won't uh, add to inflation, which is a really key concern for the government right now. Yeah, we're very excited. This, so starting the year with um, with Treasurer Jim Chalmers, which is a good way to kick off our um, calendar of events. But uh, but Jim has obviously you know gone out on a on an interesting political limb in the last week or so um, with the announcement that, that the government is pursuing this different path on stage three. Um, and you know, I guess for, for people that aren't fully aware of what the changes are, it is a pretty significant departure in some ways from what the status quo legislation had been around this these stage three tax cuts set to kick in on on the 1st of July um, and effectively what it does is instead of disproportionately benefiting uh, high income earners that it, it more evenly distributes those benefits across the income um, band including you know importantly to people that are working and earning between eighteen thousand two hundred dollars and forty five thousand dollars who sort of stood to to get nothing under the proposed changes um, so I think a lot of the discussion that we're going to be having with with the treasurer uh, later this week is going to be on the merits of that, on on why they're going down that path, why they've pulled this lever, despite a potential political risk there, but also um, framing the year ahead, not just in terms of the domestic economy and domestic uh, cost of living scrap that I think we're going to see in terms of the political mm. debate, but but also the global environment and the the sort of uh, in some ways increasingly benign global economic environment that um, that potentially will be kicking on uh, sort of a influencing our debate over the next next 12 months I think um you know when 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 the treasurer assumed his role back in uh, May of 2022 um, it was at a pretty tumultuous challenging time um, a lot of those difficulties in the global economy haven't haven't gone away of course but we've seen some really interesting data on inflation and some of those cost of living pressures seem to be peaking if not you know reversing or easing necessarily. Um, and also you know, there's some positive signs around, you know, things like the relationship with China is getting better between Australia and China and, and things like that. So I think um, the Treasurer is, is going to be uh, framing the year ahead, which will be um, be very interesting, and then uh, sort of backing in those pretty substantial changes he's made to, uh, to these stage three tax cuts. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm guessing too that uh, Jim Chalmers would have been uh, one of uh, many people within the Albanese Labor government that would have been thrilled to see today that inflation is now at 4.1%. That's still above where the RBA would like it to be. 
But it, it goes to show that, um, that there has been progress made on lowering inflation. What are your thoughts on the, the potential for there to be more uh, interest rate rises in the coming months, just to get it down that little bit further? I think that that won't happen, um, which is a relief for, for a lot of people and including you know, the government. I think they'll be very happy to see the data that came out today. You know, effectively, what the trend is is this quite precipitous decline on inflation, um, and it's mirroring what we're seeing in the US, in particular, um, in other advanced economies. It does look like this sort of transitory inflationary period, which is coming off the boil. And we saw retail data, um, sales data, come out this week as well that showed a quite dramatic slump in retail sales data. So, no one is expecting now um, in this context for the RBA to lift rates. Um, I saw today the market expectations, you know, 80% of the market or whatever uh, metric they use to, to measure this were sort of forecasting and pricing in at some point as early as June or July that there will be potentially a rate cut, um, which is which is interesting and it certainly changes some of the, the context of uh, this cost of living conversation. Mm. But what I think is interesting about the data as well is that um, it shows that, you know, over the last 12 months, 18 months, the Commonwealth, state governments, they have done a lot on cost of living relief. Like, it's not like they haven't done anything at all. Obviously, the challenge is persistent. But, you know, the Commonwealth have put in place pretty meaningful measures around um, energy bill relief, Commonwealth rent assistance. Um, that's, you know, some viewed as, you know, quote unquote, inflationary. Um, but despite those levers being pulled there's still this sort of precipitous decline in inflation that's being being measured so it it at least means that government does have a little bit more wiggle room um, to address cost of living even if that does involve some additional money coming into the economy and you know some are arguing of course that with the stage three tax cuts um you know it probably is potentially more inflationary than the original design purely because so much more of that money is going to people on lower income, so you have a more higher propensity to spend that money. But there's room for the government to breathe on, on pulling in when it comes to pulling these sorts of levers. So, um, yeah, I'd be uh, stunned if the RBA wanted to, you know, uh, finish the job and raise rates uh, too too high. That's very unlikely now. Now the conversation turns to to when they will look like um, uh, lowering rates, and ideally, politically for the government, that would be sort of at the back end of the year. We see a um, an easing of, uh, of monetary policy that aligns with this tax relief coming in with some of these other cost of living measures sort of kicking in. So that's the hope for the government, I think, and, um, and I think it's quite a likely scenario too. Yes, most definitely. And it was interesting too to see some of the analysis that you did around um, some of the lower income workers that will now be eligible for a tax cut where they previously weren't as well. You know, for people that are uh, earning 45 grand a year, you know, just the idea of having some extra dollars in their pocket, you know, that doesn't necessarily translate to discretionary spending. These are people that are dealing with a really difficult rental market and successive mortgage rate rises, um, the rising cost of living across the board. When people start to to feel a bit of an ease uh, by having a bit of a tax cut, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be going out and uh, and spending money for fun again. I think for a lot of people, at that uh, lower income end, it's just kind of give them a bit of breathing room. The, the thing is, is what's been fascinating watching this conversation over the last week or so um, is that the, the, the kind of lived experience of people within those income thresholds, and, and maybe if you earn a little bit more, 50 or 60,000 bucks, 
a year. People, they're just completely dismissed in these conversations about like families and it's a, it's been remarkable to see the opposition, you know, for example, talk about how people earning $190,000 a year, that's so much money these days, et cetera. Um, you know, even if you, you think that, the reality is the medium income in Australia is $67,000 a year. You know, that includes people that work part-time. But there's there's an enormous amount of people in the economy that do work um, work part-time, whether by um, choice or just because that's all they can get. Um, there's a, some full-time jobs in Australia where the hourly wage, uh, wage equates to, you know, $48,000 per year, even if you're working a full-time job. That's the sort of lower end of the, the award range with some occupations. I mean, in my own family, my, my old man, he lives off a um, off an insurance, uh, sort of income protection insurance thing because he got crook and had to retire early. Um, and he earns a little bit over 50 grand a year and was the, the extra $800 he'll have under these changes um, uh, as someone who has to sort of pay his tax quarterly. I mean, it's very, very tangible and very meaningful in, in his life. So, you know, the idea that the government could could pull that lever and deliver such meaningful help to people in that income threshold is is just so important and it's so important to, to, to highlight. And the concerns that the opposition have had that, you know, you're effectively, I don't know, breaking a promise to people on the highest income <laughs> bands um, is, is frustrating because they're focusing so heavily on that and certainly not seemingly at this stage supporting at all the sort of even principle of providing any extra assistance to people who desperately need it. Oh, that's that's right. And it's been interesting too seeing some of the case studies that um, certain media outlets have choose to hone in on. You know, we're talking about uh, couples that their combined dual income is more than $400,000 and they're talking about the increased uh, difficulties that they expect to have in buying a property now, now that they won't be getting as much of a, of a tax discount. Whereas yeah. the flip side to that argument, and this is something that we've started to see uh, through some of the ALP socials as well, is some of the figures like a, a nurse on $76,000 will get a tax cut of 1579 or a truckie on $77,000 will get a tax cut of $1,604. So it's interesting to see which of those sorts of lived experiences are going to be the ones that resonate with more people. Yeah, and I, I think, I just think on that, you know, I don't think people care in Australia if people earn a lot of money. It's not like there's, so the opposition is saying, oh, this is a, you know, class warfare um, topic and, you know, the government are begrudging people for doing well and things like that. And it's not that at all. It's just that you have finite resources and finite levers to pull as a government. Um, and where, you know, this is the best one to pull to meaningfully address cost of living and to sort of bring a bit more equity into the tax system. There's still legitimate problems around bracket creep. There's other issues within the way that, you know, Australia, um, uh, you know, manages its tax. But, you know, it's it's not punishing people on higher incomes. <laughs> and they, of course, still get tax cuts. No, that's these, right. These, these proposed changes. So um, I, I think it's been pretty disappointing seeing that, I guess, the language around that and, and, um, yeah, some voices in the media, in the opposition, wherever it may be, trying to kind of animate this class warfare narrative, which uh, I don't think could be further from the truth. Yeah, no, that's that's right. Um, you know, right now people are looking to political leaders for leadership when it comes to making a difference to cost of living. So in, in terms of 
the the McKell Institute's wish list um, for the Albanese government. Do you want to talk through some of the measures that you think would be worthwhile for the government to be considering right now? Yeah, totally. So so we've been doing this work on um, you know on cost of living relief, trying to figure out okay what what can we practically add to this conversation. Um, noting that as I mentioned, there's been pretty substantial work on energy bill relief um, on Commonwealth rent assistance. There's been a lot of work at state levels on things like, you know, just daily nuisances for people, uh, public transport yeah. fees, things like that. Um, there's, you know, always a, a kind of temptation to try and solve big problems with these big mega ideas, but there's also room for, I guess, smaller, practical, readily implementable levers that particularly in the Commonwealth level that they can pull that might not help everyone at once, but help certain segments of the um of the population and then in this context aren't inflationary. Um, so there's a few ideas that we've been playing around with over the last couple of months. Um, the first one is national toll road relief. So we've seen in New South Wales uh, one of the most effective political and economic, um, uh, I guess, moves that the New South Wales government has made, the Labor government in New South Wales, um, has been to enact this toll road relief package, which is sort of, in some ways, the kind of inelegant economics. It's effectively the government sort of subsidising the the tolls for people. But um, we had these huge issues in you know Western Sydney with people, particularly shift workers, tradies, those that have to go back and forth, those that are driving all day long, paying you know hundreds of dollars per week on tolls. Um, just this extraordinary cost on people's um, you know burden on people's uh, household budgets. Um, and the New South Wales government has sort of enacted a cap, a weekly cap of $60. We've proposed effectively replicating that policy in Queensland and Victoria where there are um, also toll roads and, and the Commonwealth in, involving themselves in that, collaborating with state governments to, to offer that sort of targeted toll road relief. And similarly, trying to put a sort of reasonable cap on it, whether that's temporary, whether it's 12 months, 18 months. You know, it's a really practical, simple um, idea that people understand and people are going to feel every single week. So that's one one idea we've been teasing out. Yeah, and I really like that one too because I just just wanted to to add to that Ed that I know that sometimes when we talk about um, toll road relief, people are very quick to say, well, that's uh, going to incentivize people to be driving instead of using public transport. But when we talk about it in terms of there being a cap on there for people that are using a toll road a toll road consistently, it's just it's really targeted at people that are using those roads because of the nature of their work. They need to have a vehicle with them or because they are doing shift work. These aren't people that are doing their regular commute into the city or, or anything like that. If you are using your vehicle at a level where where a cap is really going to be making a difference, that's where the, the relief is really needed. Yeah, and I think it's it might not be a, a permanent solution, but it's uh, in a sort of moment like this, I think it's a useful useful lever to explore pulling. Um, the, the, the next idea we've been talking about a lot, and this is something that is, an, is sort of a, an old Mikel idea, which we've been advancing for several years, is uh, effectively the establishment of a ultra low interest emergency loans program through MyGov for people that currently are flooding towards payday lenders. Um, we have this mm. horrible situation at the moment during cost of living crisis where um, more and more people are going to predatory payday lenders. Um, they're not illegal. They're not, they're not banned or anything. They're kind of operating within the law. Um, and unfortunately, payday lenders are actually serving a purpose and a need at the moment. I mean, people... 
uh, a lot of people are using them and they're soliciting those services. And you know, there's a whole swathe of people on, particularly on lower income bands. So um, if they need money fast, they might not necessarily have access to a credit card or they can't you know, go through conventional um, uh, means to receive credit um, and are going to these predatory payday lenders. And that's, you know, creating these cycles of debt. It's, it's uh, you know, getting some of them chased by debt collectors over time, all this sort of horrible consequences that come mm. from, um, from using these sorts of lenders. So, um, again, this is not a panacea for the cost of living crisis at all, but um, the government has an opportunity there to effectively offer a scheme through MyGov where anyone earning under $100,000 a year, this is the McKell proposal, would have unfettered access to two $750 loans per year. They're emergency loans. They do have to be recovered over time, but at an incredibly low interest rate, effectively the Australian bond rate, which would be something like 3 or 4%, mm-hmm. rather than 21 25 30% that some of these payday lenders uh, have. And, and it doesn't mean, of course, that um, it necessarily solves the economic situation for people that have to use it. But if you're, in, if you're in a household that, you know, you suddenly bust a tire on your car or you need a new washing machine or something like that, it stops people entering cycles of debt in that moment. They have another service to go to. So we think that's something, that's something an idea we've, we've discussed for a long time at Mikel. Um, and I think now is an opportune time to, to pursue that. It's um, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I think too that another reason why I think this is such a good time is because I've uh, even noticed that there has been more advertising of payday lenders and it's presented in a way that's far more in line with what you would expect uh, marketing services to be promoting to young people at the moment. So I saw an ad the other day at a bus stop and it was um, basically promoting, you know, get get a quick online instant answer to be able to uh, borrow a couple of grand really, really quickly. And so it's the, the way that it's being sold to people and it does look like it is being targeted at young people, people that are very used to being able to access things such as Afterpay very quickly. Um, by promoting it as something that's so accessible and easy to use with slick marketing as well, um, I shudder to think how many people are turning to that as a solution because it, it is being sold to them as being a quick fix. Yeah, it's fast money. Um, more and more people are using it. It's basically mm. doubled over the last five years in Australia. Um and the government should provide an alternative. It's not. It's of a net zero cost, basically, to the government bottom line because over time that money would would typically be recovered through the tax system. I mean, this is a there's similar services available for people who are on um, income support. So if um, if you're on you know mm. receiving um, you know the age pension or something, you you might actually be able to already access certain schemes like that through the Commonwealth. Our proposal is to design a scheme that is accessible to taxpayers, particularly those on you know lower income. Uh, taxpayers people that are working but um yeah we think it's a it's a reasonable solution again not going to solve everyone's problem but it's um if you could stop you know tens of thousands of people entering those debt spirals i think that's a really meaningful outcome and a very practical makes a very practical difference in people's lives now another one like that we've been talking about another idea is um uh similar demographic or similar sort of cohort of of individuals that you want to support uh, helping those on second jobs, being able to have more access to their payoyg tax quicker. Um, we have this problem in Australia where more and more people on lower income bands are forced to work two or three or four jobs, um, not always by choice. They don't necessarily want to do it. We now actually have over a million people in Australia working two jobs at once. Um, mm. And more often than not, they're doing that in 
you know, aged care in retail um, in jobs with effectively lower hourly hourly wages. One of the issues is often when you go and take a second job, you're uh, taxed over a period of time at a higher rate um, than on your first job. Now, that's at the end of the tax year, you typically get your money back. You're not getting taxed anymore overall. But during the course of the year, you're likely to pay more pay-as-you-go tax on your second job than your first. So if you're an individual that's working two jobs collectively, earning, say, $60,000, you're likely throughout the year going to be paying more tax each week than someone who's working just one job, has claimed a tax-free threshold on that job, and then, um, yeah, is paying less tax effectively through each pay packet. So we've effectively developed an idea where um, individuals that are working a second job would have ready access and quicker access instead of having to wait for July 1 each year to actually get some of that money back that they've put into the into into tax through pay OAG, um, uh, you know, as they've been as they've been working. So again, a simple tweak allowing people to get more money that is theirs sooner. Um, often, people that are working second jobs, you know, they need a little bit more money now, not a lot more money on July one or July two when they get a tax return. So, the proposal we have is effectively to try and, um, uh, yeah, to try and get more of that money that people are are entitled to back sooner in the financial year. Um, and again, I think that yeah. would help those that are on those lowest income spectrums. Oh, absolutely, yes, especially because it, it is that particular demographic of people that do tend to be working more than one job, and especially when they do tend to be in a lot of those uh, care sectors as well. They really shouldn't be penalised for the fact that they're doing everything that they can to make ends meet while also providing essential community services as well. Yeah, so another one of the ideas that we've been playing around with is um, tweaking the tariff regime um, uh, to basically try and make imported goods cheaper. Um, there's a vast range of goods that are imported into the country, of course, that are subject to tariffs of varying degrees, you know, white goods, other household items, that ideally if, you know, the government um, lowered some of the tariffs that were on those goods that were coming into the country, it lowers the ticket price for people on the shop shelf. Um, again, that could be a temporary measure. Um, this is an idea that's been put forward by an economist called Chris Richardson as well. Um, one of the neat things about the, this policy is that even if it encourages more spending by households, it's effectively exporting the inflationary nature of that, that expenditure by, um, by you know, offshoring the, the inflationary pressure, um, which is a kind of neat trick. So it means people that can, can kind of continue uh, consuming in a way that they need to um, and are doing so ideally paying lower prices or at least, you know, those prices won't increase as quickly. Um, but at the same time, it's not necessarily adding to the inflationary pressure. There's probably a political challenge there because it's sort of encouraging people to buy imported goods rather than, um, you know, Australian-made products. So that's a challenge there. But it's an, it's an area worth exploring and I think there will be action on that in some form this year by the government. Um, what that looks like, I'm not too sure. But we've effectively in this paper teased out what that that policy could look like and sort of impact it could have on people yes yeah i think it's something too that a lot of australians when you realize the inflated prices that we pay for a lot of things that are far cheaper elsewhere it Mm. does start to feel uh, a bit unfair particularly on items that we don't actually manufacture here in australia as well yeah exactly and i think you know we might not want to have that sort of policy change forever but in a moment like this it, it could be um 
fertile ground, I think, for the government to deliver something pretty quickly, like to, you know, you'd see those prices res uh, filter through relatively quickly. Um, one of the areas we've been exploring as well, I think, is is something that, again, it's it's sort of seeing this this moment, this cost of living challenge. Um, not, not all the responses need to be sort of emergency measures that we just do temporarily. Like I've listed a few of the ideas that we have that are kind of short-term, um, immediate pressure, you know, release the pressure valves. But there's, I think this moment should be also seen as an opportunity to correct course on some of the other problems we have in, um, in on other areas. And one of the areas we've been looking at pretty su su uh, substantially is uh, the idea of the, the nature of hex repayments and how they're done at the moment. Um, at the moment, you know, unlike regular pay OEG tax, um, hex repayments aren't done on a marginal basis. So as soon as you enter a new income band, uh, you suddenly have to, you know, pay significantly more on your hex repayment. And it's not just people who've gone to university. These are people with hex debts um, or help debts, I think they're called now, um, with from, you know, TAFE courses, from other VET courses. Um, people use those schemes to borrow money to buy equipment um, in the trades and other things like that. So there's a whole range of people that have uh, that are repaying uh, help debts. But the problem is, at the moment, say if you're earning under $57,000, you'll pay 1% of your HEX debt per year. That's like the bill. But if you earn $57,001 or whatever that, that band is, you suddenly pay 2% over the overall HEX debt. And what it means is there's actually certain income levels where where once you cross that income level, your net take-home pay actually goes down because you're suddenly paying this huge, different, basically a much larger hex payment. So one of the ways that we can solve that, and it's, it's not forgiving the debt or anything like that, it's changing it so that the repayment schedules are marginal. So you you pay more on the, like, like the income tax sort of bands, you, you pay more on sort of bands of income rather than overall. And what it means is that it doesn't disincentivize people from earning more money. It's, um, it just like really would make a meaningful difference in people's take-home pay. And overall, it doesn't necessarily mean that the government's losing out on any more money. Um, those debts will be recovered over time as well. It's just a more reasonable, more measured way of collecting uh, that debt that doesn't punish people for going up into different income brackets, which is effectively what the system we have at the moment. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks uh, that can change minds. Emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline. And text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. Absolutely. And I think to anything at, at the moment that would really show young people as well that the government is listening to their concerns about cost of living would really go a long way because we know that when people talk about cost of living pressures and also budgetary measures from governments as well, it's generally framed in the context of, of a family. Um, and, you know, it could be, be quite a um, quite a traditional family set up that the governments are talking about publicly as well. So it means that if you've got people that are single or people that are quite young, they don't always feel like the government of the day is speaking directly to them, whereas something like this, which covers such a, a broad cohort of people, um, you know, may make them feel like the government is listening to some of their concerns. Yeah, I, I like it's... 
I think there's some reluctance sometimes to, to, you know, particularly in a moment like this where many of the most acute, the most acute pressure facing people in this moment are often those who don't have a university education or they haven't entered, you know, jobs post tertiary education. And I, I'm empathetic with um, governments wanting to focus sort of exclusively on, on those groups, but there's a huge amount of people that graduate from university, they enter sort of moderately paid jobs and, um, and this is really a difficult moment for them too. There's also people that, you know, don't earn phenomenal incomes just because they went to university, you know, and there's also this breadth of, of people that um, uh, that receive or effectively take have taken out loans through the HELP program, as I said, that aren't just those who have gone and done, you know, um, university degrees that have instantly led to them being in the highest paid packets or anything like that. So there's an opportunity there, I think, to to not, you know, cancel the help program or you know to to not sort of uproot it entirely but to to change it so that it simply this isn't punishing people the 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 more they earn you know so so dramatically um i think there's this very fertile ground there and and you're right i think it appeals to 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 younger people but of course you know people are still paying off their help debt you know into their 30s and 40s and 50s of course so um i know i've still got i don't know forty thousand dollar debt or something like that so um, that was a consequence of doing, you know, too many failed degrees, you know, in the early, my early, uh, university career. But, um, so there's a lot, yeah, a broad range of people that I think it is noticeably benefit. Um, you can do so without it necessarily being inflationary. It doesn't cost the government a lot of money. I think it's just, and it's a way of listening to people that, um, that otherwise feel, yeah, left out of, of the political discourse. Yeah, that's right. And that seems to be a real theme that runs through, these different options that you've spoken about, the, the fact that they are not inflationary, but are also things that government could introduce relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's these are implementable, um, not solving all of the problems around cost of living, as I framed up at the start. Um, but we see, I mean, the way that we've approached this work is is to to augment what's what's already happening. Um, we think that, like you know. The stage three lever that has been pulled is is significant, it's relatively dramatic. Um, uh, none of the ideas that we put forward here are <laughs> that consequential, um, and they're certainly not affecting you know ninety seven percent of taxpayers positively like like those are. But these are these are sensible, common sense, very practicable, practical and implementable ideas that have been some are some are some are new, some have been lurking around for a little while, but. Um, you know, that's the sort of stuff that government needs to be able to do sometimes, to be able to um, quickly implement these practical ideas that people feel pretty quickly, not necessarily in a year or two or three, um, like so many other other things that happen. There's, now, the, the last idea we've got in this um, in this work that we're soon to put out is, um, and I think there will be progress on, the, on this this year, um, is looking at reforming non-compete clauses for more, all workers, but particularly workers that are on... Um, jobs that pay under those top income tax thresholds like it's amazing there's been some incredible research last year i think it was by e61 looking at the amount of jobs in australia that are subject to non-compete clauses where you basically can't move on you need an extended period of time or you're not allowed to Mm. at all for, for some period of time move on to a competitor within that same industry it's not just you know high end law firms it's not just uh sensitive jobs often it's actually pretty like normal run-of-the-mill occupations which have been, become subject to um, 
to within the employment contracts non-compete clauses we've even seen it in the gig economy there's uh, existences of non-competes and obviously that suppresses labor mobility and obviously we know that one of the best ways that people can go and get more money is to change jobs and that's effectively where you see people's income going up the quickest is when they um, move to a job that pays them higher Um, not everyone can just click their fingers and do that but when you're um, when you are prohibited effectively from doing that that obviously uh, means it's just one less lever <laughs> that they can pull as an individual to, to improve their circumstance so that is an area that is just way overdue for reform people are talking about that that's a that's a relatively live discussion and i think i think this year you will see um uh, reform on that so i'm hopeful that will that will occur and, and again this is part of a broader package um you know that's addressing labor mobility that's another feature because of course the you know, the, the ultimate goal in the end of the day is to get to a situation where we have real wage growth, um, you know, wage growth is, is outstripping inflation. Um, making sure that there's not so many barriers to labour mobility is an important part of getting wage growth into that real wage growth territory. And I think, um, yeah, if that's executed, then then we'll be on the on the way to achieving that. Absolutely, yes, yeah. And, of course, these ideas really... Uh, stem from the McKell Institute's core values around um, supporting workers too. And I think as as well that we're starting to really come into an environment where there is uh, a lot of political will and also political licence to be doing a lot more and uh, hopefully um, appetite for more tax reform too. And so in terms of some of the, the bigger ideas I know that's something that we've always advocated for is scrapping negative gearing. Do you think that that's something that we we may see some movement on before the next federal election? I would be surprised if they did um, anything significant on that. I mean, what? So, Mikel, um, for a bit of background for the listeners, um, back in 2015, 16 ish, I think it was, we worked up a sort of an options paper on negative gearing reform. And there were, you know, there were three or four proposals within that paper ranging from, you know, abolition through to much more, I think, reasonable and, and um, nuanced ways to reforming negative gearing. And the policy that we sort of gravitated towards and was subsequently adopted by the then um, shortened opposition was effectively applying negative gearing to new properties only, grandfathering in pe- people's existing arrangements yeah. um, and recognising that negative gearing is a really powerful incentive and we can orient it in the right direction um, instead of just, you know, having endless and endless speculation on the same bricks and mortar for uh, infinitum, we can use the power that is negative gearing, this incredible incentive to orient it towards new construction, bringing in more supply. I mean, it's so funny when we look back at that <laughs> policy, um, you know, and then we, and we talk about the housing crisis and the housing supply shortfall now. I mean, it's, it's a shame that it's not in place. Um, it really that is. Being said, yeah. That being said, that being said, uh, you know, Labor it was the marquee issue perhaps in the 2019 election. You could say. I mean, they yeah. they took it to 2016, did quite well, Labor unexpectedly, and then took it to 2019 and got sort of unexpectedly trounced. And that was viewed as one of the determinants of it, and so susceptible to scare campaigns and things like that. So I think um, it's different to this stage three tax cut. Um, uh, sort of discussion in some ways because yes the government has changed tune on that but 
um, that's re- responding to this very sort of material, uh, immediate, um, uh, you know, cost of living challenge that people are feeling and they're going to see that in their pay packets very quickly. If you reform negative gearing, it's a pretty substantial thing to do and I don't think they can just click their fingers and, and, and you know, and do that. And also you won't feel the difference of that immediately. It will take some time as well. So they'll need a grandfather in properties. They'll need to, they'll need to be a whole process. So I'd be surprised if um, they do move significantly on that before, you know, achieving a second term or, or flagging it ahead of an election or something like that. Um, but I think if they did ever do it, you, you, the way that you do it is what was originally proposed, which is don't get rid of it. Um, uh, I think that's not palatable at the moment, but recognize its power oriented in the right direction and, and try and leave it like leverage that to at least addressing the supply problem. Um, instead of just regurgitating and speculating on the same assets over and over and over and pushing up prices across the board. Yes, and that was, you know, when you go back to the the genesis of negative gearing as a public policy to begin with, it was always about encouraging supply, particularly in areas that were not necessarily considered uh, ripe for Mm. investing in property. And so that was really helpful in um, in a lot of regional areas or places where, where you may not uh, necessarily think of buying an investment property because the, the rental returns and the rental yields simply weren't there. So from a theoretical perspective, it, it has worked. But when it comes to supply, if anything, it's uh, it really hasn't had that effect when you have a look at the amount of people that are up against first home buyers bidding on uh, properties at that end of, of the market. If we were in a situation where it was purely for new builds and we were encouraging people that did want investment properties to be uh, going for something that was negatively geared but a, but a brand new property, uh, hopefully that would start to have a bit of a positive effect on the rental pressures, particularly around the, uh, the capital cities. Yeah, I, I think it was a really sound policy. And I think, frankly, like you speak to you know, a lot of people uh, who, you know, wouldn't necessarily ad- advocate publicly changing it, but think it should be changed. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sad situation. We like the, the loss of that issue, you know, from was one of the great tragedies of that 2019 election, because I don't think, um, uh, you know, you can't just say that that issue alone costs labor that election, but it has sort of understandably, I guess, spooked people from going anywhere near that that area. Um, but the context has changed, you know, there's, there's more awareness of the pressures on, uh, you know, of housing supply and things like that. So I think, I think there's potentially opportunity in reopening those conversations at some point. Um, I'm not sure if they're the right thing to do for the government right now would be opening that, (laughs) that fight. I think it's, um, you know, so much of the debate over the next few months, uh, into the next election will be around this, distinction between the two parties on on the income tax proposals that they're taking basically um i saw there was some uh, pushing within the uh, coalition to get like some back benches were basically saying look we should let this one go through and then say we're also going to deliver more tax relief to higher income earners like that should be their policy going forward so you know there's going to be a pretty clear dividing line i think on that and it provides a great opportunity for the government to say look we're actually looking after people that that desperately need it. Um, hopefully, that allows them to get a bigger mandate, you know, for what they need to do in in the next term. But um, but I'm not sure. And I think I think the people that were flagging um, that they were going to do something on negative gearing were just being a bit cheeky. You know, the sort of 
people in the Australian and stuff saying, well, like what's next, you know, this, that, that, you know, um, after sort of alleging the broken promise, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I don't think they're, they're, they're immediately looking uh, in that direction. Yeah, sure. And, you know, thinking through that, that list of, of ideas from Mikel and, and the, the way that you've really gone for things that are practical, non-inflationary, and also able to be, able to be implemented as well. There's, um, you know, a, a lot of value in the fact that these are practical ideas rather than you know, sound bites that might sound like a quick and easy solution to a punter, but wouldn't necessarily have a positive long-term uh, impact on the cost of living or the cost of housing or the economy. So something like you know, the, the Greens have been um, campaigning very hard for for rent caps, which we know has been tried elsewhere in the world and ultimately has a really detrimental impact on rental properties, particularly in markets like Australia where properties tend to be owned by uh, private investors. Or you've got the Libs that have said that we should be allowing first-home buyers to access their superannuation, mm. which would just put a rocket under the entire housing market as well. Yeah, yeah. So we are in an environment where um, different people that aren't necessarily in government and don't need to deliver on things are very good at coming up with really uh, quick, snappy ideas that might sound good but won't actually deliver a practical outcome. Whereas you've really gone for some ideas here that can deliver some practical outcomes and hopefully in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, and I, like I think there's on, on some of those issues. I mean, there's really really fertile ground to still do more on on renting. I mean, and and it where the greens are right is that they're focusing so much attention on people that rent, and they they are a constituency that have often been ignored. And there's so much that can be done, and and a lot that is been been done at state levels around you know rental rights, um, you know, no, no fault of uh, evictions and all this sort of stuff. Were kind of off the off the scales. It's the wild west in Sydney. Um, you know, when you're trying to get a rental. So there's a lot that can be done to improve the conditions of rent, the rights that renters have, et cetera. Um, you know, that issue, that, that, that idea of rental controls is, um, you know, like it's appealing, but it's just often just hasn't had, had the desired outcome. So even without being any like, you know, you just, that's just what the outcomes have been in so many other jurisdictions. So the question is how can you, how can you deliver more sort of um, breathing room for renters without necessarily executing that policy that might not just work in, in, in the, in the medium term for maybe it would for some individual, for individual renters at the moment, for some of them, but it would have this sort of longer term detrimental impact, which is a problem. You know, some markets are cooling off as well. We've seen like rents in Hobart recently have gone down dramatically as they've sort of seen a lot of supply come in. So, you know, there's uh, it's, it's, it's tempting um, to, to go down that path, but yeah, I just don't think it's, it's the most practical path, but renters do certainly need to be sort of talked about and a part of our, our policy conversation in a, in a much more meaningful way, I think. Um, then there's a, you know, the perennial idea, which is to just tap into superannuation to buy houses. I mean, it's just um, a sort of zombie idea. It never goes away. It's, it's the first idea that like anyone has on that side of politics around housing. It's just this sort of dream that, that, that won't die. Um, but we did some really comprehensive modeling on that at McKell a couple of years ago. And what was really interesting about, about the, um, the modeling was that it showed that not only would, of course, if we allowed access to super just to buy housing, not only would that, of course, you know, increase prices, um, but all it would really do is accelerate the entry into the market from people who are already likely to enter the market. 
that was one of the most interesting findings. So it didn't necessarily broaden the sort of demographic of people that were able to access home ownership. It, it effectively allowed certain cohorts accelerated access under all the scenarios that we, we had modeled. Um, and that was a really interesting finding. So it wouldn't necessarily expand the pool of homeowners. It would just retain what we already have while bumping up prices significantly um, and also have a very detrimental impact to people's retirement savings. So that's certainly a no-go. Um, renters' rights, though, is fertile ground. I think I think there's always going to be more for state governments in particular to do on that front. There really is, yes. Yeah, so I think we'll, uh, we'll uh, wrap it up there, Ed, because I know that you are about to be uh, boarding a plane very soon to Brisbane to be welcoming uh, Jim Chalmers on behalf of the McKell Institute and to talk about all things to do with the cost of living and some of the uh, ways that we think uh, that we might be able to make things a little bit easier in the short term. Thanks so much for the chat. Uh, pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Today's episode of Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians and they've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means that you'll get the best results possible. To find out more, go to their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Social Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.